Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to sit under your word. Um, We pray that you give us eyes to see um, what many in the text today did not. We are a people who are desperate for your grace, your kindness, but more importantly, for the revelation of your son. We pray you help us in this endeavor this morning. Be with us as we seek to... uh, Sit under the weight of this Holy Week, invite others to hear the message of Jesus, and also to worship you in spirit and in truth. We praise your name. Amen. In the midst of a nation in disrepair and kind of excitement anxiety, there was a young idealistic leader who stepped up to a broadcast microphone and delivered a rousing vision of promise and hope, saying this, we will work as our first and supreme task to restore to people unity of mind and of will. We will preserve and defend the foundations on which the strength of our nation rests. We will take under its firm protection Christianity as the basis of our morality and the family as the nucleus of our nation and state. We will bring back to our people the consciousness of its racial and political unity and the obligations these bring. And so here we have, probably aside from the reference to Christianity, uh, a vision which is compelling even today to our modern mind, to our news stations, to our headlines. Here we see unity, restoration, peace, and morality. This is a good and compelling vision to be followed. But there's one problem with this call. It has less to do about what is offered and more to do with who offered it. This is a quote from Adolf Hitler's first address to Germany in 1933. And with the aid of history, we can look on the words of Hitler and realize that this salvation was no salvation, this Christianity, no biblical Christianity, and this savior, no savior at all. That is, the aid of history helps us see the salvation that we might have wanted, but the savior that we didn't. But if we rewind the clock some thousand years beforehand, we can encounter another young leader who stood up in a Jewish synagogue in a historically neglected region who also delivered a compelling call for freedom, restoration, and salvation. But where Adolf Hitler's plea was met by his home nation with cheers of applause despite the failings of his promise, the words of this young leader was meant by his hometown, not with acceptance, but with an aggressive and murderous mob. You see, our world understands that salvation is only as good as the person who offers it. And where history has shown the evil depravity of men like Adolf Hitler, and therefore the pipe dream of his safety and his salvation, what Luke has done so far in the Gospel of Luke, and what the history of the Christian church has proved, is that the man Jesus Christ is of unparalleled nature, he is fully God and fully man, Of unparalleled character, he is good and sinless, and his salvation is unrivaled to anything we could ever imagine. Today, Jesus is going to quote in his hometown 
a prophecy of salvation from the book of Isaiah, which would make almost anyone in our culture today stand up and cheer. But as our text shows, it's not the message of salvation that offends people, but it's the Savior who brings the salvation. This Sunday, we encounter a very fitting text given that it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, the Sunday before uh, Easter, when later on in the week, Jesus uh, would be crucified as a criminal, despite on that day coming to Jerusalem with cheers and acceptance and palm branches being thrown down. And what we see today is not the end of Jesus's public ministry, which is what we see in Palm Sunday, but the beginning of his public ministry. And yet the pattern for what we see on Palm Sunday is actually presented here in the very first snapshot of Jesus's ministry. And that is that the person of Jesus is controversial and results may vary. People will respond to this Jesus in very divisive ways. One author famously said this, he said, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Luke has spent the last few chapters showing us the idea of who God is in Jesus Christ. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, born of the Holy Spirit and born of woman. And today we will see how that wonderful identity, that true reality of who God is affects not only the ministry of Jesus Christ, but actually how it affects the people who he came to minister to. That is how it might affect you and me. In other words, what is your idea of God? And how does the message of Jesus' salvation and the person of Jesus himself sit with you? This is our main point this morning, that the privilege of salvation is for those who receive Jesus with hearts full of worship. The privilege of salvation is for those who receive Jesus with hearts full of worship. We see this in the scene of, in Nazareth, but primarily in two portions of Jesus' teaching in this text. First, we're going to hear the message of salvation. That's going to be in verses 14 through the first part of 22. But then we're going to see how we respond to the man of salvation. And that is going to be in verses 22 through 30. And Luke begins with a bit of context. It's actually something we included in last week's message that's important for us today. This is in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. After four chapters in Luke of prophecy and proofs validating his divinity, after 30 years of Jesus' life, he begins for the first time his public ministry. And before we move past this to verse 16, there are actually some really helpful patterns that are on display for us in this. And we see his ministry characterized by three specific things at this point. First, Jesus is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we see his ministry is a localized but mobile ministry. 
In other words, for those of you who like burgers, Jesus' ministry at this point is more like In-N-Out than McDonald's. It's centralized in one specific geographic region and not the whole nation. Jesus' ministry here is happening in the northern part of Israel, opposite from the cultural center of Jerusalem, kind of in the sticks of Galilee. And lastly, we see the response to Jesus' ministry. People were glorifying him. They were praising him. Jesus was going from Jewish synagogue to Jewish synagogue, teaching the people, and the result was worship. And so here we have the spirit-filled man of God going about in this sort of itinerant ministry, speaking in synagogues on the Sabbath, being glorified by who? Look back at your text, verse 15, by all. All that Jesus is doing at this point is producing the fruit of glorifying and praising him. And this is very important for us to understand for our passage today. Because this fame-increasing, much-worshipped Savior is now coming for the first time to his hometown. Perhaps you've seen stories when a war hero or maybe like a championship sports team comes back to town after their great victory. And in Montana, we get this all the more. There are small towns with very few things to do besides get excited about what these 17-year-old boys are doing on a football field. And when that team comes back, they get out the bunting and the banners and they throw a parade to celebrate the hero who came home. One of us made it big and now he's coming back. And all of this excitement, specifically in smaller towns, of which Nazareth would have been at this point, is undergirded by the fact that everyone knows everyone. There's this relational connection where your aunt is the one who taught the kindergarten class. And your neighbor is the one who cooked the bread that his family got every time they had a special occasion in their house. And this is what Jesus is coming into As the other surrounding areas are hearing Jesus' teaching, this excitement is building, and here the hometown hero comes home. But at some point, despite this welcome party, something takes an absolutely terrible turn by the end of it. In other words, the subtitle of the sermon is How to Not Kill Jesus. (laughs) Because it ends with them trying to throw him off of a cliff. But how does that happen? How do we get there? Well, this is where we need to submit ourselves to the text to understand the dynamics at play here. And the first thing we need to see is Jesus' first teaching in this text. And that is our first point where we begin to hear the message of salvation. That is hearing the message of salvation. Read with me this picture of hope Jesus himself brings in verses 16 through 22. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That wasn't like a mic drop. That's what would happen in this context is the rabbi would stand to read and then sit to explain. And all the eyes and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
and began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So what might seem a little foreign to us, it takes a little work for us to understand today, was of really imminent uh, importance to those who were hearing this. Everything that came out of Jesus' mouth was not only astounding, but it was phenomenal. It, it cannot be overstated, the fantastic things that Jesus was saying. And first, you'll notice that the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. He came to the synagogue, and someone gave him this scroll. And the scroll of Isaiah is just a copy of what we have in our Old Testament as the book of Isaiah. And this specific prophet was significant to the context of Luke chapter 4 because Isaiah told Israel that they were going to be judged on account of their unbelief. And that eventually, though, God would keep his promise and he would restore them. He would be favorable to them. This judgment and this restoration of Isaiah would have been of neon significance to the people in Nazareth and particularly Galilee because sitting in the north, it was the northern tribes of Israel who were judged first by the nation of Assyria. And they fell on account of their unbelief. And even when after the southern tribes fell and they were taken into captivity to Babylon and the exiles returned and began to rebuild Israel, all of that rebuilding effort and all of those tax monies were spent and centered on the southern portion of the nation near, Israel, or near Jerusalem. And so this northern kingdom had kind of long been left out from this picture of economic and physical restoration. And they sat in this day, not under Assyrian rule or under Babylonian rule, but under the rule of Rome. This whole region ached for restoration. And so as the news of Jesus and his message of restoration and hope for Israel was getting out, it was probably very intentional that Jesus was handed the scroll. They're like, hey, Jesus, give us some of that salvation talk. What you did at Capernaum, do here as well. And yet the part Jesus opened to, right? Isaiah was handed to him, but Jesus was intentional as to where he went in this book. He opened to him on this broader context where God is actually predicting the restoration of Israel. And he's in fact going as far to say that the lowly nation of Israel will be restored and the nations will flow to it and serve it. But even more specifically, Jesus chose the one portion of the one section of the book of Isaiah where what is emphasized is not the effect of salvation, but the person of salvation. And this is from Isaiah 61. I want you to notice what this passage is actually about. Verse 17 through 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus opens Isaiah to a specific portion 
which speaks of a specific person who was going to bring an extreme salvation. Right, this text keys on one individual. Who is me? It is the Lord's anointed. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, it's that idea of the Lord's anointed that makes up the Hebrew understanding of what the Messiah is or what the Greek is uh, as, as the Christ or what we should rightly call today the Savior. And there are many people in the Old Testament who are anointed by the Lord to fulfill specific tasks. We see this with kings and prophets and judges all throughout the Old Testament. But the Jews knew that at one point, the Messiah would come, the anointed one. They understood that the anointed one was exclusive because of the weight of salvation they would bring. That it was going to be such a profound restoration of God's promise that only one who is so filled by the Lord, so chosen by God, would ever be able to accomplish it. And what we see in this text is we see what the ministry of this anointed Messiah, Christ, Savior would be. He would do what? He would proclaim good news. This is Luke's favorite word showing up again, literally reading, he would be gospeling, good newsing, declaring good things. Yes, the anointed one would set people free, but he also wants us to see that this salvation is a message. God not only plans to do something great in your life, but he wants you to know how and where he's going to do it. The message of salvation is of utmost importance to God's people because he is always calling people to pay attention to the message. He wants you to know what he's going to do and where he's going to do it. The man who had this message was going to do great work, wasn't he? We see that in that text. He's going to be speaking to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captive, healing the blind, setting free those who are oppressed. But more importantly, this one man, the Messiah, we see in verse 19, is going to proclaim, again, this message the year of the Lord's favor. Now, favor does mean this astounding truth that the God who is king of all things might become happy with you. You might be favorable to him. Right, when we, were, when we look at Genesis and Adam and his wife were naked in the garden and unashamed, there was this intimacy of favor, but sin disrupts that. We know that even in our physical bodies, If I were to stand up here naked, we would all have a bunch of different emotions, right? (laughs) Shame for you, shame for me, shame on all of us. (laughs) But here, with God who sees everything, is the promise of favor, where every aspect of your life is known, and the sum result is not disgust, is not judgment, is not being ostracized, but being enjoyed and accepted. But it also echoed back to what the Jews knew as the year of Jubilee. There's every 50 years in the nation of Israel, Jubilee would happen. Right, Jubilee? Wherever she is, she's in here somewhere. There she is, all right. And on that day, all debts were canceled. All servants were freed. All land that was transferred or sold to another family clan was reset back to its original owners and family groups. In other words, when we are brought back into the Lord's favor, when those who are far off are brought back into God's good pleasure, the whole of your life is restored, redeemed, and reoriented. Everything is turned right. Everything is healed. Everything is made better. We live in a world where the presence of marketing is so pervasive 
We carry it in our phones, right? You've heard the thing where if you don't pay for something these days, it just means you're the product. (laughs) You're being what's marketed to. When we buy something that's branded to be the best, the longest lasting, the greatest, we don't actually believe that to be true, do we? None of us, when we buy the jeans that are meant to last a lifetime and they get a hole in it, we don't have an existential crisis because we knew it couldn't be that. When we find something more durable, we don't cry heresy. We expect that to happen because we live in a world where the best is very frequently never available. But I think that often permeates the way we encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. We often think that in turning to God, we find another consumable commodity that is good, worthy of time and money, but not the best not the most significant thing. It's true that turning to God, we find a renewed purpose in life. Or perhaps we find a worldview which makes sense of our reality and our pain. We find a framework through which we begin to view politics, morality, parenting, sexuality. We find a culture in the church to which we can turn to find community and care. And while all these things are found inside of God's good news, God's good news is primarily centered not on life enhancement, but on life itself. It doesn't enhance your sight. It gives you sight. It doesn't give the oppressed a five-step plan to become free. It sets you free. It doesn't change your life. It makes dead people alive. Whatever your thoughts on God might be, before we move on, I want you to consider whatever message you've heard of God's salvation. And I want you to ask yourself why that might be attractive to you. These people came to the synagogue with a perceived need in their heart. Why do you think you need the gospel? Or is that even a word you would use? I want it. I should have it but do you need it? Because for whoever you are and whatever your issues might be, here's the promise of freedom and of intimacy that restores everything by coming to the God who loves you. Do you see in it the promise of new life itself? Because it was this holistic understanding which caused the Nazarenes to eagerly await what Jesus would say next. Jesus had told the people that the man with the magnificent message would one day come. And so what would he now say? This is where we read what Jesus says next in verses 21 through the first part of 22. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am me. I am the one. I am the Lord's anointed. I am the gospeling, spirit-filled one. And then he goes so far as to say, it's fulfilled. He didn't say it's coming or it will be fulfilled. He said it is fulfilled. And this is where it helps us understand what Jesus is actually talking about here. Because he's not saying that the work of salvation is completed. It certainly wasn't. Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't been resurrected yet. 
There hadn't been perfect atonement for sin yet. They were still oppressed people. There were still captive people. There were still blind people. So in that sense, the completion of salvation had not happened. But what the fulfillment of this message means, what Jesus wanted them to understand is that the Lord's anointed, the spirit-filled Messiah, the good news proclaiming, liberty-setting, captive-freeing, favor-giving Savior had come. Salvation had come in the man who carried the message. Salvation begun when the Savior came with this wonderful news, and those Nazarenes on the fringe of society were eager to see this unfold before their eyes. They marveled, it said, at his gracious words. But look down at verse 28 and 29. Skip down a little bit. So first of all, we'll do some Bible study. Go back to verse 22. What does it say? And all spoke well of him. Now we'll skip to verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. So despite the gracious words of Jesus, something changed drastically. Amazement turned to aggression. Marvel turned to murder. So how did this happen? How did the hometown hero become the hometown hated? And this is where it's easy to see that it's one thing to love the idea of God's salvation and quite another thing to respond to his savior in the right way. The most important response is not the response to the message of salvation, but to the man of salvation. That's what Isaiah 61 is about. The one who does all of this the one who proclaims it, the one who accomplishes it. And what we see here in Nazareth is if we don't see God's favor in the person of his Messiah, then it doesn't matter what you see or what you hear, you will not see his salvation. And this is our second point this morning, having heard the wonderful message Message of liberty to the outcast, recovering of sight to the wounded. Here we see what it means to actually respond to the man of salvation. Read with me the following response in full, Luke 22. We're going to read the second part through 30. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. We have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there are many lepers in Israel, In the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the hill. But passing through their midst, he went away. And so what went wrong? 
That was really something I wrestled with. We wrestled with when we read this at staff meeting. Like, what changed here? Because <laughs> it seems really slight. And then Jesus gets a little bit convoluted, and we wonder what's going on, but then the actions of the Nazarenes tell us what's going on at the end, doesn't it? They are angry, they are upset, and they would like Jesus to be dead. But we begin to see the problem that we see at the end is ultimately caused by their own pride. They are blinded to who Jesus is because they have an inflated view of themselves. And Luke leaves us a trail of breadcrumbs to get there. If we just look at this text, and first we begin to see the problem, we hold in context two specific verses. So this, this is where Bible study is really important, okay? So look back at Luke 4.15, where we started. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by who? By all. All who heard Jesus' message did what? Glorified him. They praised him. But what about those in Nazareth? Look at Luke 4, verse 22. And who? All. Did what? Spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And so what do we see here? We begin to see the danger of assumptions when we become familiar with the gospel of grace. These people assumed that speaking well of Jesus was all Jesus wanted from them. That not hating him, that not saying this guy's a lunatic, but just being like, Jesus is a good dude. We're glad he came. I've heard that prophecy from Isaiah before. That's a good thing. I want that in my life. They assumed that knowing the words of Jesus was the same as worshiping Jesus. Of seeing Jesus raised in your hometown was the same as seeing Jesus as the Savior, as understanding the historic person. No one in this town doubted the historicity of Jesus Christ. But they didn't see him as the Savior. How many times ought we ought to think, well, if we could prove such and such according to history, then I will believe. They had all of that. And they missed it. Speaking well of Jesus sounds good. I want to make it clear. I want this church to speak well of Jesus. I want to be a witness to the beautiful grace of what it means to be saved by Jesus Christ. Do you speak well of him? Good. I hope you do. But do you worship him? Do you glorify him? Do you praise him? It's really easy to change your social media bio or your Slack bio or whatever media you're using to some marker of Christianity. It's easy to slap a bumper sticker on your car that's in the shape of a fish. It's easy to put on a t-shirt that identifies you with Jesus, but verbally identifying with Jesus is far different than glorifying him with your life. If tomorrow you woke up and your words were gone, would your worship remain? In other words, if you woke up and were totally mute and all you had was the affection of your heart and the actions of your life, would you be glorifying God? That's what it looks like to respond to this Savior. 
And notice Luke's subtle emphasis even on what they marveled at. They marveled at what? At the words that came out of his mouth. Despite the fact that everything Jesus said pointed to him, they failed to see it. They were so captivated by the promise of salvation that they refused to marvel at the source of it, which was standing in their midst. Our right response is to marvel at Jesus. It is to see that it is only he who could do this. It is to identify ourselves with him. And how easy is it for us? Like we see Simon the magician in Acts chapter nine being so drawn to the wonderful, mystical reality of following Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit. That sounds cool. That sounds what an empowered life looks like. We get invited into this community where people are really gracious and they speak to us differently than the world speaks to us. And we get to come and we get to sing songs together and we get to do all of these things, but we can do that and so easily neglect action actually coming to know the person of Jesus Christ. Knowing right doctrine and even having a biblical vocabulary is nothing if the words of God don't get us to the man of God. And here we see a warning to anyone who thinks they know the message of salvation. Hearing the good news of the gospel hearing the words of grace, hearing the wonderful hope of salvation to the weak, to the wounded, and the wayward is no good if, like the Nazarenes, you fix only your eyes but never your heart. Consider God's warning in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. These people drew near to Jesus with nothing but lip service. And the danger is, the gospel should create lip service. It should change the way we talk, it should change the way we view God's word, but they assumed that seeing Jesus and saying Jesus-y things was sufficient for saving, but it's not. Has your familiarity with Jesus or with his word led you to assume that you've found salvation without ever finding Jesus? You see, what makes someone a Christian is not their affection towards the message of God's salvation. Lots of people would love Isaiah 61 verses one through two. What makes someone a Christian is your affection towards Jesus. To love salvation, but to miss the savior is to have nothing at all but more than blindly assuming, Jesus actually goes a little further and he talks about another dangerous response and that is the response of presumption. And that is speaking to those who know enough to be dangerous. Where assumptions are kind of blind, we walk in and we assume something without ever experiencing it. We begin to presume when we actually do the diligence of looking and examining and considering and we come to an informed but not fully informed conclusion. 
The Nazarenes heard all Jesus said, and they presumed, given who they were, given who Jesus was, that of course he would come to save them. Look at verses 22 through 23. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Why do they expect Jesus to do these things? Because he's Joseph's boy. How many of you have heard of some great football player or NBA star or business owner who has gone back to his small local hometown, contributed money for a new auditorium or football stadium, and it's got their name emboldened all over it and blazoned all over it? They do that because they realize they're like paying homage to the town that made them who they are. It's giving back to this community. And here we see the danger of presumption. The townspeople assumed that Jesus owed it to them. That certainly Jesus would not neglect his own hometown, some of his miraculous healings, or maybe some of that water into wine stuff. Maybe some fun teachings about overthrowing Rome. And more than that, they didn't even bat an eye at the message of salvation because they already presumed it would be for them. He belonged to us. Of course he would come to us. They're Israelites. Of course God would send his Messiah. Of course he would set people free. Of course God would be favorable for us. We are his special people. This is the same thing we saw when Johnny preached on uh, Luke chapter 3. And John the Baptist is calling the crowds to repent. And what do they say? Repent? We're Abraham's children. We don't need to repent. Of course God will accept us. But we presume. Do you remember, if you've been with us specifically the past few weeks in Luke, what was Luke emphasizing about the reality of who Jesus is? At every turn, we came back to what? To Jesus, the son of God. Why did Jesus stay in the temple? Because he was the son of God. Why was John calling people to repentance? Because the son of God was coming. What happened when Jesus was baptized? You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What happened in the genealogy? It ended up that Jesus was the son of God. What did Satan tempt Jesus with trying to disprove in the wilderness that Jesus is the son of God? And so there is some special kind of dumbness that comes when seeming to know Jesus, the Nazarenes say, here's Joseph's son. No, he is not just Joseph's son. He is not just a local celebrity. He is not just a political waypoint. He is the son of God. How easy is it for us and to cast a Jesus according to our own expectations and say, this salvation is great and of course he would save me because he can use me really well. Of course this is for me because generally white middle-class Americans are who Jesus somehow miraculously saves. I want to speak specifically to kids that are in here right now. Kids, if you're here, you're here today because your parents brought you here. And that's awesome. And the Bible has some really cool assurances of what it means when your parents bring you to church and teach you what the gospel means, that Jesus died for your sins 
that he comes and he saves you when you believe and repent in him. But I want you to know this. You don't belong to Jesus because your parents belong to Jesus. You don't belong to Jesus because you came here to church and you will not be saved by Jesus because Jesus saved your parents. You will be saved by Jesus because Jesus has mercy on undeserving people. You'll be saved by Jesus when you respond to him in worship by realizing that he is the special one and you're not. The message Jesus impressed on his own people was that Jesus doesn't come for the superstars or the hometown discount. He comes for the undeserving. And this is what pricked the Nazarene's pride in such a way that was the straw that broke the camel's back. They couldn't understand that they, on nature of who they were, were not innately worthy of this Jesus. And so Jesus reaches into the heart of this ethnic and presumptive privilege and he confronts it with two illustrations from the Old Testament. We see these in verses 24 through 30. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose to drive him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus leans into this ethnic privilege, this presumption they have. And he says, you really think that because I grew up here and because you belong to Israel, that you're worthy of this salvation? He says, don't you remember Elijah and the widow? Don't you remember Elisha and Naaman the Syrian? And they do, and we might not. So we'll give a little backdrop if that's you. Elijah and Elisha were both prophets in the Old Testament whose job was to call Israel out of unbelief and back to faithfulness to the Lord. And while the whole of Israel was in a famine inflicted on them by God to say, come to me, stop going to idols. I give you food. They give you nothing. They are sticks and stone. While Israel is being punished with a famine, God sent Elijah to a family to be cared for. It wasn't an Israelite family, and it wasn't a normal family. It was a non-Israelite who lived in Sidon, and it wasn't a successful, well-saved-up-for, functional family. It was a female widow with a son. They were outside of the people of God. And by nature of both how that culture at the time treated women and specifically treated widows, she had no capacity to provide even for herself, let alone her son and God's prophet. Yet Elijah went. And the widow opened up her jar of oil and her bread and God miraculously provided throughout the whole famine. And there was no want in that house. Meanwhile, 
Israel went breadless. Then there's Elisha. Elisha served when wars and political conflict raged all around. And Naaman was a military officer of a nation that frequently attacked Israel. And on top of that, he was a leper. That's not the cats, it's the spots on the skin, it's the wounds, it's the sickness. And so according to Israel, he was not only a mortal enemy of the state, but he was also ceremonially and spiritually unclean. And Naaman heard about the great God of Israel. And you know who told him? His slave girl, who was an Israelite, who the Syrians captured while invading Israel. And yet when he heard about the great God of Israel, he went to seek the man of God. And in that day, Elisha didn't heal a single leper in Israel. But he healed a man who had no standing or belonging to the God of Israel. Why? Because God's salvation is for the outcasts. The Lord came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, restoration of sight to the blind, and the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came not for those who belong by nature, but by those who by nature do not. He came not to those who see themselves as worthy, but to those who in regards to salvation and righteousness had no worth at all. This is scandalous to our pride. And yet it is the fuel for worship. Now this is a little distinct today if we speak into our cultural moment because we actually love stories like this. We could go to downtown Missoula and probably hold up much of what Jesus quoted in Isaiah 61 and it would be met with cheers that we would consider the oppressed, that we would consider the marginalized. We like these stories. And in some ways, this new cultural doctrine of intersectionality says that the more minority subgroups you belong to, the more afflicted you are, the more worthy you are. And there are points where actually what culture is talking about helps the church realize deep wounds that are still in our society that we should care about precisely because of Isaiah 61. But on a whole, what's actually happening is we're just shifting where we find our worth, aren't we? We're saying, okay, for today, our worth is no longer in being a white, powerful landowner or a brown Israelite priest our worth is in being oppressed and afflicted. You see, Israel had no problem being the poor, being the captive, and being the blind, did they? They marveled at those words. Israel just likes it when you're the worthy poor, the worthy captive, and the worthy blind. <laughs> but both of these miss the reality of our salvation. There is nothing in us that so moves a man as worthy as Jesus to come and take away our sins. And yet he has. He has come. So we then find our worth. If you sit and you feel like the blind, if you feel like the one whose pride is inflamed, if you feel like the captive and the oppressed, where do you go to find your worth? By seeing the one who's worthy of it all by turning to the message of this salvation and worshiping the one who brings it. After Elijah spent time with the widow, the outcast on the outside, look at what makes her an insider. Verses, chapter 17, verse 24 of 1 Kings. 
And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. After Naaman was healed, what did this outsider say? Second Kings 5, 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. In Isaiah 61, the same chapter where God promises to restore Israel's fortunes. Look at the promise he holds out, not just for Israel, but actually for all of the nations who are outsiders to God's covenant promise. In Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as earth brings forth its sprouts and as gardens cause what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and what? Praise to sprout up before all the nations. We are not saved because we are worthy, nor are we saved because we are unworthy. We are saved because Jesus is worthy. And we access that worth by turning to him in worship, by seeing that saving beauty, that liberating power, and that glorious favor, by surrendering all we have to Jesus, the Son of God. That's where we find our worth. Jesus becomes our worth. And to those who hear this message, and you have wrestled with hearing and seeing the words without hearing and seeing Jesus, here is your hope. You might feel that you are the most blind the most obtuse, banging your head against a wall, but come and worship this king. Here is the one who delivers you from spiritual blindness. Here is where you come humbly with nothing to see the one who humbly was everything. And there's an important part of Isaiah's prophecy which Jesus didn't include. Look at Isaiah 61, verses one through two. See if you could find it. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. What did Jesus leave out? Vengeance. Why? It's not because that day doesn't exist. One day each and every one of us will stand and we will be judged based off our response to this king. One day all of us will follow the foot of Christ the judge. But Jesus excludes that because while the man and the message exist, being proclaimed to all who would hear, those who worship can fall at the feet of Christ the Savior. They could come now. There is wonderful future hope. There is in ways that our political system can't imagine a restoration of those who are broken, those who are poor, those who are wounded, where God's kingdom will be so much better than anything we could ever imagine and we more diverse than any of our wildest dreams. But right now, salvation is fulfilled by granting spiritual sight to those who are blind. So do you see Jesus for who he is? What is your idea of yourself? in relationship to this man. Jesus at the end miraculously walked through an angry crowd. 
But Jesus didn't escape death, did he? Jesus here avoided dying at the hands of those who couldn't see him. Only to a couple years later, on this holy week, go and die to save those who couldn't see him. How are you responding to Jesus? Are you glorifying him with all of your life? Or are you responding in a way that is close enough to know, but not near enough to worship? But here is hope, and that is for those who come to this man, righteousness and praise will spring up like fruit. If you haven't come for the first time, this is coming in faith. And if you've come in faith, then we go and we sing and we confess and we pray what we're gonna do today with the fruit of divine redemption in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot, no preacher can, no theologian can, no philosopher can, no politician can overstress the simple dividing point of responding to Jesus rightly. Lord, we pray that the salvation Jesus proclaims would be so attractive to us that we cannot miss the man who brings it, the one who takes our sin and gives us righteousness, the one who takes our blindness and gives us sight, the one by, who, the one by whom our, our own wounds are healed because his body was broken. This Easter week, Lord, may we sit under the reality of who Jesus is and who we are. And may it lead us not to respond in unbelief, but in worship. We pray this in your name. Amen.